Welcome to part two of the mini-series on increasing equity for all learners. Here we continue to learn from Pam and Don about the guiding principles that are a part of math recovery and also about the importance of using wait time with all learners. If you haven't yet listened to part one, pause here and click on episode 37. Welcome to the Kids Math Talk podcast, where in each episode, we give parents and educators practical tips and insights that will deepen mathematical understanding while also encouraging the conversation about math to remain active and positive. I'm your host, Desiree Harrison, elementary math coach and Kids Math Talk founder. The sixth guiding principle is observing this child and fine-tuning teaching. Teaching involves intensive, ongoing observation by the teacher and continual micro-adjusting or fine-tuning of teaching on the basis of his or her observation. We talked about the zone of potential construction in a previous guiding principle, and I think that the zone of potential construction for some students can be very thin, right? It's just, it's so tiny. And we might think we're giving them a good problem. And then we find out that the problem is either too easy or too hard. And I'll tell you, students let you know, you know, pretty quickly, right? If they're frustrated or if they're bored. So we think it's important that we can observe the student, micro adjust, make small adjustments to the problems we present so that we can, again, using my favorite word here, engender the development of new understanding. How you all just described and gave the example of number six reminds me of Peter Lilliadal's research and then how he has embedded the research of of flow into Mm -hmm. his work that just uh, the micro adjusting the constant i've read these principles before Mm -hmm. and have been in sessions with these principles before but just hearing you all say that i made a new connection The seventh guiding principle is incorporating, symbolizing, and notating. Teaching supports and builds on the child's intrinsic verbally-based strategies. I should qualify that by saying that not all students are verbal. So we, in the book, change that language just a little bit to include whatever strategy is intrinsic for the child. And then these are used as the basis for the development of written forms of mathematics, which accord with the child's in intuitive, in innate strategies. To me, the important word in this guiding principle is incorporating because we start with what students do intuitively, whether it's verbal or using a communication device, sign language, just man- using manipulatives. And then we add the symbolizing and notating as a way for them to communicate about the mathematics that they're doing. It's really important that we don't move to abstract symbols or numerals too quickly. The eighth guiding principle is encouraging sustained thinking and reflection. The teacher provides the child with sufficient time to solve a given problem. Consequently, the child is frequently engaged in episodes which involve sustained thinking and then reflecting on the results of his or her thinking. So that metacognitive piece. We've already talked a little bit about wait time, and I just want to add a comment about including wait time after students have given an answer. We are very quick to jump in and say, you're right or you're wrong. And I'm sure we've all had the experience of students looking at our face after they give an answer to see if they can see on our face if they're right or wrong. 
you know, they're just often looking to us to confirm. And we actually want them to reflect on their answer and to feel confident in their ability to verify their answers on their own. So that reflection time after they've solved a problem is also really important. The last of our guiding principles is aiming for children's intrinsic satisfaction. We believe students gain intrinsic satisfaction from their problem solving, from their realization that they're making progress, and from the verification methods they develop. So I'm the former special education teacher here, and stickers often used to reinforce students. We, however, want students to be reinforced by their enjoyment of solving problems and using new skills. I often think about playing video games. You know, what's the reward for beating a level on a video game? Students work and work and work. Children, adults work and work and work to beat a level on a video game. And the reward of that is that you go to a new level where it gets harder. And you're like, all right, now I get to play this new level and try to beat this level. So I wish that we could play, make math instruction more like a video game. Like, I want to do this so I can move on to something more challenging. Loving this podcast? Great. Subscribe so you know when new episodes are released. And leave us a review on Apple so that others can find these episodes. We are stronger together. Let's keep talking about this um, critical dialogue and uh, our honest conversation and start to explore the concept of equity or explore it a little bit more, a little bit deeper, and to, to gain a greater context around it. So near the end of your book, you talk about math recovery as a vehicle for improved equity of access to quality educational opportunities. And I love the scenario that you'll give about counting in a language that you're not yet fluent in. So can you talk to us about the connection between equity and increasing wait time? I'd be happy to. In the book, we share a little vignette about number word sequences in Spanish. On numerous occasions, I have asked a group of adults how many of them were fluent in Spanish. And there are typically at least a few people in every group. And so I tell them, okay, for the next few minutes, you're not allowed to talk until I tell you to. Then I ask everyone else if they can count to 10 in Spanish. And almost everybody can because of Sesame Street, right? So we chorally count to 10 together and everybody's successful. And then I say to them, okay, what number comes right after siete? And then I close my mouth and just watch. What do you think happens? Well, I know what's happening for me. I'm starting uh, uno. <laughs> Tres, cuatro, right? And you're pulling up your fingers underneath the table to figure it out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly what young children do. And that's exactly what English learners do in the classroom. And so by putting adults, both teachers and parents, I've done it with both groups into that situation, all of a sudden a light bulb goes off and they say, oh. I understand now why they're doing that. And so we, then we talk, go on and have a conversation about, so what do you have to do to get beyond that? You know, as, an, as a Spanish learner, what do I have to do to get past the point that I have to count from uno to figure out what comes after siete? Well, it's just repetition, right? I got to do it over and over and over and over and over again. And I just haven't done enough. And then I'll say, all right, this time start at diez and count to uno, right? And that again is a real challenge. Now I, I have to admit when I was doing this, I had no Spanish, right? Other than what I'd gotten on Sesame Street myself. Since then, I've been trying to teach myself Spanish with uh, Duolingo and I'm a little better off. So I, I now know that Ocho comes right after Siete and I don't have to count anymore. Mm. But if you ask me what decapol comes after Vente, 
then I'm like, mm, okay, how do I say that again? You know, so putting people in these kinds of situations really helps them understand the learner with fragile knowledge and it affords them the opportunity to build empathy and understanding for our English learners and for young children. It's an extremely great cognitive load. Because you're, mm-hmm. you're trying to think about numbers in two different languages at the mm-hmm. same time. And it's a lot of brain power. It is. I think that's another great example of why some students need more wait time. When we think of, of our um, students who are learning English, that either they're doing, you know, what Pam just illustrated is that they're trying in English to, they need to count from one so that they get the right sequence, or they're translating, you know, they're putting it back into their primary language, doing the calculations, and then they need to, you know, translate again so that they can tell it to us in English. Either way, you're right, Desiree, it's a huge cognitive load um, for those students on top of the problem solving that they're trying to do. Students with learning disabilities or students who are still developing fluency with English need increased wait time. When we don't give wait time, we are excluding these students from meaningful participation in the classroom dialogue. When we give adequate wait time, we afford students with a range of learning differences the ability to process the question and then formulate their response. This allows all students to meaningfully participate in the classroom discussion. When I was a classroom teacher, I spent a lot of time building the shared classroom norm of wait time. If someone blurted out an answer or frantically was waving their hand, I would remind them that we don't want to steal anybody's opportunity to think. We want to wait until every person has that chance to think about what we're discussing. So instead of raising their hands, I would just have them quietly raise a thumb next to their chest to indicate that they were ready to share their thinking. And we would wait until every person indicated they had had adequate time to prepare their answer. And I also strongly believe in waiting after calling on an individual as well. So I've been known to wait as long as three minutes, which may not sound like much, but when you're timing it in a classroom, that's an eternity. So in, I would just sit there and look at them without uttering a word while waiting on a reluctant learner to give their response. And you only have to do that once until everybody gets the idea, She's not going to just bypass me if I sit here for a little while. So um, it really changes the whole dynamic in the classroom. I like to think of myself as what I've heard Zaretta Hammond and others refer to as a warm demander. When I used to tell people that I was a special education teacher, they would often say, oh, you must be so patient. And really, I am not. I am not a patient person, but I am a stubborn person and I can outweigh a lot. We would challenge people who think that they have good wait time. You probably are aware that, um, Desiree, that we use video a lot as an instructional tool in math recovery. And we record a lesson so we can observe and reflect on the student and teacher actions. So I would encourage people to record themselves teaching and collect some data on how much wait time you're giving students. And also notice if there's a difference between the amount of wait time that you give to different students, things like that, that you might look at. So check for yourself to see what kind of wait time you're giving. Yeah, it is difficult because they even 20 seconds can sometimes feel like an eternity and Mm -hmm. in the classroom, but you know, in in other spaces, it's not a lot of time. So Mm -hmm. I had, um, 
a teacher tell me when I had two teachers working with me when I did my PhD classroom teaching experiments, and they were in the classroom while I was teaching. And after the whole experiment was over, I asked one of the, both teachers actually, you know, what's the most powerful thing you learned from this experience? And the one teacher who was a veteran teacher, and I felt like a really good teacher, she said, you know, Pam, I thought I understood what wait time was, but after watching you teach, I realized, I don't use wait time. So, and I think it can be very, very powerful to just sit there and, you know, if you have to bite your thumb or whatever, to really be quiet. You know, we, in our culture, we are so uncomfortable with silence and it's so very powerful just to, to bite your tongue and just Mm -hmm. observe. I will say you need to know your students. I did One time I was providing wait time and I looked over and he was starting to cry because he really didn't know the answer and he didn't know how to respond to me. I I was not someone that he knew well. So it's just another case of where you need to know your students and, and know what they need. I'm taking a quick break to remind Kids Math Talk listeners about all of the math professional development books that are available through Corwin Mathematics at U.S. Corwin.com. Many of the authors of some of the latest titles have been guests on the podcast, including the authors featured in today's episode. Want free shipping? Of course you do. Then use our special code KMTSHIP. That's KMTSHIP, all caps, at checkout. Now let's get back to the interview. So critical in equity is high expectations. That's all students should have the ability to access rigorous content. Too often students with disabilities are not given the opportunity to have a productive struggle that is critical in developing complex mathematical ideas. Just because a person has a particular challenge doesn't mean they can't have complex ideas. Just because a person is a slow reader, a slow processor, or has difficulties with working memory, we can go on and on with different scenarios, that doesn't mean they can't think critically. And we, as teachers, deny students access to rigorous content by our limiting expectations. We want to send the importance of building on what students know for every student. I primarily think about it when I'm talking about students with disabilities, because that's my background. But we need to use assessments to find the foundational knowledge that students possess so that we can build on it. In my opinion... When we provide students with tricks to get through the math, we're sending a message that the student can't think. That's not true. You know, everybody thinks. Everybody thinks. We need to give students the right things for them to think about. We also think about building on what a student knows in terms of leveraging funds of knowledge in the community. Students in different communities come to school with a lot of very specialized knowledge. When I did my student teaching in Appalachia in the 1980s, I had a student, I'll call him Gabriel, and Gabe lived with his father and two aunties in a one-room shack on the side of a hill with no running water, no electricity. Gabe's father could not read or write. And Gabe struggled in school. However, Gabe and his father knew how to trap, skin, gut, cook a host of wildlife on a wood-burning stove, knowledge I'll readily admit I do not have. At the time, I didn't know about funds of knowledge and didn't recognize all the knowledge that Gabe had. How might I have leveraged that knowledge 
to help him succeed in that. And academics. You know, it's so very critical that we recognize the assets our students possess and leverage those assets in our teaching. Yeah, definitely coming from an, an assets-based view and then also the continuous reflection because we're going to make mistakes. And as long as we're continuing to, you all were saying this, like continuing to, to grow in our, and deepen our understanding And at the same time, looking back to say, okay, when I was in these situations one month ago, one year ago, five years ago, if that comes up again, how am I going to approach this differently now knowing what I know and having these additional resources and understandings? As we end the second part of the Increasing Equity for All Learners mini-series, reflect on the following before listening to part three. Which guiding principle resonated with you the most? How do these guiding principles help build positive math identities for children? Teachers, how are you currently using wait time in your classroom? What's one action you will commit to so that wait time increases for students? Parents, how might you begin a conversation with your child's teacher about the importance of wait time? So now I hope you'll take a well-deserved break, and then when you're ready, click on episode 39, where I talk to Pam and Dawn about tips for making math tasks relevant and accessible to all learners. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to keep the Kids Math Talk conversation going. You can always tweet me with questions or comments using the handle at Kids Math Talk. You can also head to my website, kidsmathtalk.com slash podcast for previous episodes of this podcast. And join us next week for another episode of the Kids Math Talk 